0: in the skies stars in the sea these are dreams of mine. I fall at your feet. hi there everybody welcome to another episode of the cloud-based mayhem got a special show for you today that's maybe a little more applicable to our North American listeners than to our European and Australian New Zealand and Asian listeners uh, but uh, I think you'll get a lot out of this. I sat down uh, here locally in Sun Valley with a good friend of mine, an excellent pilot, uh, Revis Gray, who is really heavy into the technical side of what we do. So you know, he uses airband radio when he's in the air to talk to airports to get weather. Uh, he's really good on using various different tools for weather of deciding a good day and you know days to go out, and epic days and days to avoid and really conservative in terms of uh, his progression and how he approached safety because he didn't really experience fear when he was learning how to paraglide and still doesn't to this day which is pretty unusual so he has a really unique uh take on all of that he had a comment actually in the show about i was asking him about you know what What he sees that he doesn't like uh, when people are learning or kind of mitigating intermediate syndrome it had a really cool comment that i had never heard from any of our other guests about keeping your the speed of your wing up uh, especially for those who spend a lot of time like ridge soaring that kind of thing so some really interesting stuff here this one's a lot more on the technical side of what we do than what we typically talk about and uh I think you're going to get a lot out of it, especially, you know, using things like X Contest to explore various lines. And uh, for those who aren't really strong with Medio, this is a great way to delve into more of that. And we've got everything that we talk about in the show, in the show notes on cloudbasedmayhem.com for this episode. So I invite you to explore that, we put up tons of resources where you can just bookmark and if you're in what, depending on what part of the world you're in, I think that'll come in really handy. So we're just going to get right into it. Please enjoy this uh, great talk, with a good friend of mine, Revis Gray. I in love, I in love. Revis, welcome to the mayhem, man. I really appreciate your time. And uh, just before we started recording here. You, you said something pretty interesting to me. You said when you first started flying, you weren't experiencing fear. So you had to kind of approach it more analytically. So that seems like an awesome place to start. Give me a little bit of your flying history, when you started and how it's all kind of panned out.
1: All right. Yeah. I'm uh, specifically talking about flying paragliders. I actually got into some other parts of aviation a earlier in life when I was I think 12 or 13 years old, I, uh, Took a ride in a Cessna at an air show. They are doing $5 airplane rides. Yeah. It was basically a lap around the pattern. And uh, some sort of switch flipped in my brain after that experience. And <laughs> I pretty much knew I needed to fly. Yeah. My parents were incredibly supportive of that. And where were you? This was uh, up in the Northern California, okay. North Bay, Santa Rosa, that area. Okay, okay. County, cool. On the advice of one of my friend's fathers, who was a ex-air national guard pilot and flew for Delta, They got me some lessons in sailplanes when I was, I want to say, 14 years old. Wicked. And uh, never soloed or got my my ticket flying sailplanes, but ended up going on um, to take power lessons in Cessna 152s. Soloed when I was 17, got my private pilot's license when I was 18. Then I went away to college, and my priorities shifted. I got more into partying, didn't really have the kind of income you need to to fly private airplanes. Right. Uh, And so I sort of fell by the wayside. And, uh, when I was finishing up college, a good friend of mine, Daniel Barquet kept telling me about paragliding, how fantastic it was. And I should get into it. My response was always, well, you know, I'm, I broke college. So you don't have time or money to pick up an expensive hobby like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I kind of forgot about it for a while. A few years down the road, uh, my career had started picking up and I, I did have some time and money and, uh, did a tandem skydive for a friend's birthday. And the free fall was an incredible experience. unlike like anything I'd experience before, um, and I enjoyed it. But as soon as the, the canopy opened, it was another light bulb moment where I was like, ah. I just want to do this all day. I need to learn to paraglide. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and from basically from that moment forward, I was um, pretty obsessed. And uh, it took me, I think, maybe three to six months just before I had my first lesson. And then the first year for me, was pretty slow because um, I was traveling down Santa Barbara. And what year are we... This was 2007, okay. 10 years ago. Okay, yeah. Yeah, traveling down to Santa Barbara for weekends to, to train down there. With but, Eagle? With uh, Flybowl, actually. Okay. You yeah, know, back when Chad Bastion was running it. Yep. Yeah. And once I got through the progression got my P2 and sort of began trying to figure out how to become a paraglider pilot, how to <laughs> actually learn all the things that are ahead of you once, you once you get signed up as a P2, it was very clear to me that a lot of situations where I probably should be scared all I was feeling was an intense desire to get in the air and fly. And I knew that there was a ton of things I didn't know yet, that I didn't even know what those things were. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so I took the approach of, of really trying to be conservative about the choices I was making and almost picturing what it would be like to be scared in moments when I was not feeling scared. Hmm. and To use that as a tool and say, like, fear is here for a reason. I'm not feeling it. All I want is I'm just craving being in the air, but I need that tool in my in my toolkit. And so I have to tell myself this should be making me scared.
0: I, I find that a lot of engineers are really good pilots. And, and I don't know what your schooling background is exactly, but I know you're quite analytical, quite technical, quite engineering oriented. Do you, do you credit to that? Is it more just this is a problem to solve rather than a reaction to... But like the, oh shit reaction.
1: Possibly. Yeah. I, uh, I, I studied computer science and I do software engineering. There may be uh, a, some sort of relationship there. It really it's just who I am. I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, for, for whatever reason, I, I don't have intense emotional reactions in general and especially around fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have much background in other sports, so I don't know if it would have come up uh, if I did, but, I was really more of a computer geek, you know, growing up, Mm. got outside some, but not a lot.
0: (laughs) Right. That's really interesting. And so you, you were cognizant that this was super dangerous and you just had to approach it in a different way. Were you, did you find mentors that helped out with that? Or was this something you just kind of figured out? Like, how, how did you, how did you know back then, not knowing what you know now, how did, how did you know how to go slow and how did that piece together?
1: Well, as soon as I, I realized I wanted to learn a paraglide, I started you know, devouring all the information on the forum, um, reading everything I could, basically. And so I knew right from the start that there was a pretty significant level of risk to to flying a paraglider. Yeah. Unfortunately, finding mentors was kind of difficult. Um, the The area where I was, like I say, progressing out of, of being a new P two, uh, is really more dominated by hang glider pilots. Um, So there were not a whole lot of paraglider pilots around in my club. And unfortunately, uh, sort of two of the more experienced ones uh, either moved across the country or quit flying Mm -hmm. right around the time where it really would have been great to have them as mentors. Okay. So I I think I kind of took it upon myself. And the the time when I did start to connect with mentors was a little bit later on in my progression and I um, got involved with the Northern California Cross Country League which was incredibly helpful in progressing through the sport and mm. learning and being around better pilots and flying with purpose. Mm. But yeah, the part about disciplining myself to act as though I was scared in times when I wasn't really, I figured out pretty early, and I'm not sure, not sure to explain how or why that happened. But Have you had any accidents? Um, I've had uh, an incident that involved ending up in a tree with my feet on the ground, <laughs> uh, uninjured and no damage to my equipment, uh, a little bit of poison oak after getting the gear out of the oh. tree.
0: <laughs> oh, that's the worst. <laughs> um, <I> a crash.
1: <laughs> and I've had a, a relatively bad ankle sprain. Okay. So, so far, that's the worst of it. Yeah. Uh, hope I can keep that track record going. <laughs>
0: yeah. Why not? Why not? Let's keep a mm-hmm. margin. Well, the reason I really wanted to talk to you is I know you've got this great background in the technical side of what we do, which is really important uh, from studying. Lines on XC skies. Uh, I mean, sorry, on X contest to studying weather on XC skies. Um, let's talk about how you now, after all these years, last ten years of flying. How do you? How do you break down ongoing flying?
1: Well, probably a little bit of background is helpful here. Yeah. In that, I've basically centered my entire life around flying paragliders, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm not independently wealthy to the point where I. Don't have to work. So, I, I've figured out how to have a career doing remote freelance software work. Um, and I basically have an understanding of all of my clients that I will get the work that they need me to do done and I'll do it on a certain schedule. But the exact days that, that happens are pretty much up to me, except for, you know, rarely I'll, <laughs> I'll agree to the scheduled meetings and conference calls and commitments. but. Pretty much, um, I work when the weather's bad and I fly when the weather's good. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, that requires quite a bit of looking at the weather and, and understanding of, of the source of information that are available and sort of how to predict what, what you're going to experience. Uh, but to a large extent, that allows me to, to pick the choice days. And so that's what I'm generally looking for in weather. The basic technique I use, uh, since I, I've set my life up in this way, I didn't mention that, so I live out of a trailer, so I can move around and kind of be in areas where the weather tends to be good at any given time of year. Let's
0: just pause on that real quickly. What's your What's the last year look like? Rewind to a year ago and, and take me through the last 12 months.
1: All right, so a year ago, I was right back here in Sun Valley. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Because um, this is a, an excellent time of year for, for flying cross-country in Sun Valley if uh, if you're up for dealing with some Big air, it's serious turbulence. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Perfect training ground.
1: Yep. And after Sun Valley, I uh, I passed through Telluride, Colorado for a bit. That was quite a, an, an interesting place to fly. It was spectacular. Some of the most amazing scenery I've seen, probably anywhere, but definitely flying a paraglider in the United States. Mm. And a lot of challenge too there. the The weather tends to be extreme and unpredictable, and uh, the mountains are tall enough but my, my tagline for Telluride is 18,000 feet has never looked so low. Right. Yeah. <laughs> don't really have a lot of options from 18,000 in terms of That's where you can fly. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and after after Telluride, I passed through Arizona for a bit. That was more for uh, visiting family than, uh, than flying, but I think there's a lot of potential there, and I hope to go back next, or actually, this winter and explore mm-hmm. a little bit more. Uh, and then I've been spending a lot of time in the winter down in Southern California flying Marshall in San Bernardino, mm-hmm. a fantastic community there. It's a really consistent site with some good thermal flying all through the winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, a good place to sort of train and stay current and you know, maybe fly small, small tasks or just try to do out-and-returns and things. When um, most people in the United States are uh, you know, maybe Sweet. skiing instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So then uh, in the spring, I uh, passed through the Owens Valley for a while. It's uh, one of my favorite places to go in the spring. It's quite nice in the fall, too. The fall is a little more approachable for uh, people who maybe aren't, aren't ready for the full-on conditions that you get in the Owens. Mm-hmm. But had some great flights there. Uh, then headed up to Southern Oregon for the rat race. Spent a, a brief stint in Bend, Oregon, flew Pine Mountain a couple times, and now I'm back here in Sun Valley. Twelve so months of flying. Sort of a, a migratory loop, you know? Yeah. I figure when I see lots of migratory birds around, I'm in the right place.
0: <laughs> Perfect. And do you, I know you've been doing this now for the last few years. Um, you getting burned out? You getting bored? Is it is it hard to find motivation to keep doing it, or how, what's... Rocker. So I've right been
1: now. living in the trailer and and doing the sort of fully chasing paragliding thing for coming up on two years now. Okay. That started um, September the previous year, and so far I love it. Uh, right now, I would say I'm basically trying to do everything I can to continue this this life as long as possible. Perfect. Nothing else is really uh, tempting me to do anything different. Perfect. Perfect. Cool.
0: Okay, so back to identifying it. A great day like right now we've got this is a good example we've got you know some bad days ahead so what are you what will weather uh analyzing look like is, is a good day in years or a p- potential good day what are you using
1: what are the tools so th- this varies a lot depending on the flying site here in sun valley wind is, is super important the mountains are big enough that if, as soon as the wind passes a certain certain threshold you really have very few options about where you can go, and it starts to get turbulent and scary <laughs> yeah, yeah. and dangerous. Yeah. So the first thing I'm looking for is, are the winds reasonable? And around here, I figure if you're seeing maybe 20 miles an hour at peak heights, 12,000 feet, that's pretty much hitting the, the upper limit of manageable. Um, so definitely looking for lighter winds. The next thing in a place like Sun Valley is, what's the chance of overdevelopment? Something that I'm just starting to learn about, and so this is really what I'm focusing on now. But I don't have a lot of uh, a lot of wisdom to, <laughs> to give out. Is uh, how monsoonal moisture plays into that. Mm. I haven't really spent a lot of time in, in places where the monsoon is a significant factor, and around here this time of year, that's a big deal. Mm. And you're heading to the Wasatch,
0: so exactly. Like in in
1: Utah, I think it's even more important than here because yeah. um, it's farther south, more access to that for that moisture to to infiltrate. Mm-hmm. But having mid-level moisture present basically provides a lot of energy to the atmosphere um, to allow for clouds and storms to ever develop. So figuring out whether or not that's going to happen is uh, is a key part of figuring out whether or not a day is, is going to be good for flying. So you
0: mentioned wind and instability moisture. What are you using to identify those?
1: Um, for wind, uh, XC skies is a good starting point. I also look at well, I guess maybe I should back up a little bit and say, the first thing I check every day is the area forecast discussion for whatever regional office is closest to the flying site. Fire weather? Potentially two or three. And they'll give you a lot of information. It's the you know professional meteorologist's take on the next maybe 12 to 24 hours. And they will give you a little bit more extended forecast too, but I usually kind of gloss over that part because mm-hmm. it tends to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It takes a little while to get used to reading those um, because they use some jargon, but typically most of the the acronyms and sort of more terms of art are hyperlinked to a, diction- a thesaurus or dictionary. It's a glossary actually to mm-hmm. give you definitions of the terms. And if you start reading the one for your local office, you'll pick up on a lot of the terminology they use. And then occasionally you'll, you'll run across something you have no idea what they're talking about. And if you go and and read a little bit about it, your, your weather knowledge will greatly expand. <laughs> Great.
0: Those of you who are listening to the links to everything we talk about will be in the show notes. So just go check that out. Uh, it'll be on this episode and, and we'll have links to everything and you can explore it or you can send me a question. And I can sort you out. Okay.
1: Anyway, the, the meteorologists will tend to, to talk about whatever they feel is important to the population in that area. So uh, it may be fire weather, it may be storms, it may be extreme heat, it may be damaging winds, in any sort of severe weather they'll they'll sort of focus in on. Mm-hmm. But they'll tend to talk about the the output from several different weather forecasting models. Oftentimes they'll talk about how, whether or not those models agree. If the models are in, in agreement, then you can have a lot more confidence that what you're seeing in forecasts is probably going to happen. When the models are saying different things, we have less to go on. Mm. They'll also talk about... Pressure systems and fronts, uh, troughs and ridges, prevailing winds. Around here, they'll they'll mention monsoonal moisture when they think it's going to infiltrate, um, because that has a huge effect on daytime temperatures and thunderstorms. So that's a great starting point. I, re- I recommend that to everybody who flies paragliders. Uh, read the area forecast discussion. Well, see everybody. <laughs> this yeah. this applies to the United States. Unfortunately, I don't I don't have much knowledge of the weather source available in the rest of the world. Uh, but hopefully you have similar tools uh, mm-hmm. at your disposal as well. Sure. Then XC Skies is usually one of my first stops. It's a fantastic tool, uh, especially the new version gives you access to more models to look at and uh, potentially some more intuitive ways to to view the output from those models. I find the, the point forecast tool to be uh, one of the best places to start, especially if you're looking at winds, as it'll give you an overview of the coming days. And it'll show you uh, wind at different altitudes throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Um, getting that much detail across in the, in the map view requires quite a bit of clicking around. Mm. Then, depending on what I'm seeing there, uh, if it looks really bad, I'll often just cut off my my forecasting for the, d- yeah. the day and. Uh, go to work. <laughs> which,
0: which model do you find? You know, are you using certain models for the day of like the HRR3? Are you using GFS? Are you using NAM? Which one are you finding? I asked too, because you mentioned that, you know, it depends on where you are. You know, we found XC skies in Europe to be way too optimistic. Um, it was always under calling the wind, over calling the base, under calling the, the, the development. And that's because I think, Chris has only access to GFS and maybe one other there. So, you know, when you're in Europe, you can, you know, especially in France, you can use Medio Parapente. When you're in Italy, they have another one that's the Italian version, which is a lot more accurate because it's using more models. It's interpolating more
1: data. Right. It it is regional. It's something I'm learning moving around is each, each area, each site may be better served by certain models. Mm. Uh, The GFS, Generally seems to be a relatively good starting point, but some places the NAM seems to be more accurate. Um, I do like to, to check the high resolution models, especially morning of, and see what they say. But generally my technique, since I, I don't have one area where I'm really focusing on understanding this, this intricacies, is kind of to average them. Mm-hmm. And, and once again, the closer that the models are in agreement, the more I believe that that forecast probably is going to be somewhat accurate. Mm-hmm. It is nice that, especially with the GFS, that it gives you quite a few days into the future too. So you can start start keying into features that may indicate a really good flying day two or three days out, mm-hmm. um, and then keep tabs on them to get closer.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you using many of the uh, a lot of the stuff on the left hand side? Oh, cape, XC potential. Uh, thermal updraft, velocity, of it, a lot of that kind of stuff, too?
1: Um, I generally start with looking at top of lift on the map. Okay. I look at cloud base if there's any chance of cumulus development. Uh, around here, I started looking at lifted index in Cape more to try and understand when instability is going to lead to overdevelopment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an area I'm a little bit less familiar with, uh, but it seems useful if you're if you're any concern about better storms. Mm-hmm. I look at buoyancy to shear ratio with some regularity, uh, but usually when the winds are light, the buoyancy to shear ratio is going to be fine. Mm-hmm. I personally don't look at uh, XC potential a lot because it's sort of a, an, I guess you could call it an index of several parameters that aren't necessarily useful to the kind of flying that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great starting point, if, uh, especially if you're a newer pilot and not so familiar with the weather. But I say, I would say, I evaluate the XC potential based on looking at all those parameters and more in my head rather than, than okay. not in that layer.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Then as far as other resources, so that, that I think covers pretty much what I do in XC Skies. Okay. I look at satellite pictures. There's a new satellite called GOES-16. It's not operational yet. It's a geosynchronous um, weather satellite that provides much higher resolution images and much faster updates than we had previously. Mm-hmm. So I've been looking at that every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has visible layers, infrared layers, um, and a mid-level water vapor and moisture layer, which is actually very useful for once again, understanding what, where monsoonal moisture is, how it's moving hmm. and how much moisture is available for overdevelopment. Are you, are you trying to
0: identify from, in looking at these models, um, is your line of the day based purely off winds? Or are you also looking for like potential convergence lines? Are you looking for other stuff?
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely convergence, wind, and ideally, you know, cloud development, but not overdevelopment. Mm -hmm. Those all factor into it. Wind is obviously the most important, but convergence is hugely important too. Mm -hmm. And for many flying sites, there's what's called a regional atmospheric soaring prediction, or RASP, which is a high-resolution model run uh, over a smaller area. Mm -hmm. And RASP tend to be good at picking out convergence or resolving convergence. Mm-hmm. So if your area has a RASP, um, I would highly recommend starting to look at it. They tend to provide much better detail about convergence, much better detail about how wind moves near passes, any place where there's a venturi or constriction um, or sort of multiple air masses meeting. I, I find that a RASP tends to give you much better results than you'll see on a uh, you know 40-kilometer grid like you might with XC skies GFS. Okay. Is that something
0: similar to like a Windy TV?
1: Windy TV uses the same models as, actually it's just Windy now, they've changed the okay. name. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um uses the same models as exercise, uh but also includes the ECMWF, the European model. So I do look at Windy every day as well, because mm-hmm. it's the best view that I'm aware of currently for the ECMWF wind information. Okay. It does have a high-resolution NAM as well, so if you don't have a RASP in your area, then high-resolution NAM tends to resolve some of those same kind of smaller circulation patterns, terrain-dependent circulations, um, that can be really useful to understand, especially if you're flying near passes and there's any chance of getting windy. Okay. Any other tools? I look at uh, a sounding prediction uh, using the ruck-sounding site every day for a point in the area. Potentially multiple points, um, depending on the flying site. And it plots model information on a skew diagram. So, uh, so it's taking a balloon trace
0: interpretation. So it'll take, it's, like, it's hearing, using, it'll take the Boise one and plane it.
1: It's using the same uh, plot that you get for balloon sounding. Yeah. But it's just um, rendering model data. And you can see the same thing in XC Skies. There's a skew tool there. But I found, uh, at least for California, it's, it's, it's Southern California especially, that the ruck sounding QT based on back forty model gives very good results. Maybe overpredicts the wind sometimes, but is better at resolving inversions and giving an idea of how much, once again, how much moisture is available for convection than a lot of the other options. Okay. Uh, I will often look at a balloon sounding too. Some places, especially near the coast, I feel like they're kind of worthless because. At least, you know, on the west coast of the United States, the hours that they're launched are kind of the opposite of primetime flying hours, and mm. so a marine inversion or a little of a night inversion kind of skews your whole picture. Mm. Um, mm. You know, if maybe you're only going to get to two, three, four thousand 3, 4,000 feet, and there's a 1,000 a feet of marine layer, how do you know how much the heating is going to overpower that the next day? Sure. Um, okay. Whereas I think in more continental areas, the balloon sandings are a lot more useful.
0: Okay. Cool. Any others?
1: Let's see. Um, as I moved around, I I sort of collected the local resources at each site. So I have a, a folder of weather bookmarks with a folder for each flying site that I I visited, and each each folder usually has fifteen or twenty bookmarks. Wow! Um, so there are a few others, but a lot of them are more site dependent. Um, I'll try and give you a dump of as many as possible for that the show notes. That would be
0: great. Yeah, we we put those up. I I mean, it, to me, the takeaway here is. This is one of the great ways to become a better pilot, even if you're not flying. This is something you should just spend time on. A lot of the stuff we just talked about is Greek to to you, listener. (laughs) Then that's how you resolve that, is playing around and reading stuff and and farting around and and seeing how close you are. You know, I just got back from the X-Alps. We had a guy uh you know, dedicated to weather Uh, Media France uh, you know, who lives in Chamonix, he's done weather for the XOP since the beginning for one athlete. Uh this time we shared it with another one. And uh, you know, he sits there with seven screens and looks at weather all day and it's really, really sophisticated. But what it comes down to is really, you know, does what you see line up with what you get? And that's how we have to go, you know, that's when we get excited about going flying.
1: Yep. And uh, it can be useful to get out and fly on days that are are maybe, maybe borderline as long as you have the skills for it to develop a better understanding of what you're seeing in the forecast matching, what the sky is actually doing. Yeah. But it always is is helpful if you're doing that to keep in mind that maybe those days are borderline and, and give yourself extra wide margins for safety. Yeah. The, uh, one of the, one of the, reasons I really wanted
0: to talk to you is we had a flight here last summer, which is kind of hazy to me now, but, you know, we, we knew we were borderline OD kind of day. We took off from Baldy and uh, we dove over the back of the Pios. You were out in front of me by a margin. Uh, we were kind of heading towards Arco, as I recall. And I started getting a little bit of rain and the clouds were getting pretty tall and uh i landed and you kept pushing on and i later found out you know your your reasoning for why you did that was actually really sound whereas when i was looking at you on xd find i was like jesus i hope he doesn't get caught in this stuff so now let's advance from you know you're trying to pick out the day and you're looking at all these weather things now you're in the air what are you doing that's different than what most people are doing in terms of resources when you're up there because you're using quite a few while you're flying
1: right yeah well let's see um First off, I would like to say that I had a decent number of very good flights last year where I feel like the water weather was borderline. Uh, and so one of my resolutions for this flying season was to give myself wider margins and mm-hmm. take fewer chances with the weather. Mm-hmm. That day um, last year in Sun Valley, uh, I feel like there was a decent amount of luck involved in being on the ground before overdevelopment encroached. And so basically outrunning it and landing in time. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm trying to make luck less of a factor. <laughs> yeah. So one of the ways to do that uh, that I found incredibly helpful, uh, I started doing this this winter in Southern California, is flying with an airband radio. Uh, this, this how useful this is will vary depending on your flying site uh, and how many airports are around with automated weather or terminal information. Most general aviation airports, um, you know, above a certain size have a weather station. And either if they have a control tower, often the controller will, once an hour, record all the weather stats and provide a bunch of other information at the airport. Mm. So that's useful, but slightly less useful in my eyes than uh, the sites where it's fully automated. All you have to do is tune in the frequency for the airport, and you'll hear what sounds like a looped recording, um, but it's actually a, like a synthetic voice uh, reading you out all of the weather information that's current for that airport. Mm. So it'll give you wind speed. It'll give you uh, often wind variability and gust factor, uh, surface pressure, sky condition. And then maybe some other information about the airport that's not super useful. Mm. But having this this real-time information, um, especially if wind is, is a concern, if you're worried about it getting blown out or if you're worried about the wind in certain certain areas. So flying to Southern California, the L.A. basin is separated from deserts by relatively high mountains, and there are a couple of big passes. So a, lo- a small pressure difference across those passes can equate to winds that are very unsafe for trying to land a paraglider. Mm. Um, so this is a, an effective fern. It's yeah, a, I think I mean we, we never
0: talk about fern over here, but in the you know in Europe, fern is a major deal. That's yeah, in, in Southern California,
1: um, they talk about Santa Ana. Mm-hmm. Um, Santa Ana is essentially like a fern; they're a downslope, but it can happen either way. So, you can have a pass that's way too windy to fly in because there's high pressure in the high desert and it's flowing down into the basin, mm-hmm. or you can have a pass that's too windy to fly in because. It's lifting in the high desert, and all the air is flowing up through the pass. Mm-hmm. Either one, you don't want to be low in that constricted venturi area. And so, having an airport in or near the pass with real-time weather updates—you know, real-time wind conditions—can be incredibly helpful in making decisions about whether or not it makes sense to try and cross or, uh, you know, basically navigate around the pass uh, in the higher mountains.
0: Because
1: mm. you can't necessarily tell what's happening on the surface when you're up high. Sure. Yeah. Also, in, in Southern California, I feel like having an airband radio is hugely helpful for safety. There's a ton of traffic, you know, giant commercial jets, a lot of general aviation, sailplanes, pretty much everything. Yeah. <laughs> and most of the time, uh, we're flying paragliders close enough to the terrain that we don't have to worry too much about the big jets. Uh, but occasionally, you get good days where all of a sudden you're flying near these super high traffic approach corridors. And I've had very positive uh, experiences talking to SoCal approach, and telling them a paraglider, giving a position report, saying how many other pilots are flying with me, and then having them warn the incoming jets to watch out for us, and then actually hear the jet pilots call out that they spotted us really yeah which is <laughs> <amazing>. feels fantastic <laughs> instead of just praying <laughs> yeah,
0: have you ever done that out here with the, like the military jets and stuff i mean i can't count the number of times i've been up at like 16 17 grand and i hear these guys half them i don't even see them but they're right down on the deck you know doing their barrel rolls and f-16s and i've been told by those pilots that they wouldn't have a chance in hell of seeing us
1: yeah I haven't tried that out there. The effectiveness really depends on sort of what frequencies are available, what the controlling agency is. Mm. You know you have to be on the same frequency that the pilots that you care about communicating with are on. Mm. Uh, so, I feel like it works best in places where you're near large metropolitan airports and there are sort of well defined approach corridors and approach controllers. Mm.
0: Um, I'll have to ask some of the British pilots about this because they deal with a lot of airspace. Mm-hmm. They must be doing something similar, so we'll talk to them. Yeah, I
1: can't speak to the, the legality in Britain, but in the US uh, in 1996, uh, a law was passed that changed licensing requirements for airband. So that instead of requiring an individual license or a specific station license for an aircraft, aircraft are licensed by rule. So you can carry a handheld airband radio as long as you're flying an aircraft, you don't need a license to operate it.
0: Okay. On that note, you do have your ham license, I understand, right? And how how important is that for us? Should we all have- I
1: personally highly recommend all paraglider pilots um, get a ham license? At least any paraglider pilot who wants to go across country. Mm-hmm. There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, first off, is uh, Yushpa has specific frequencies in the business band that they've been allocated to use for paragliding operations. But technically, you're only supposed to use those frequencies with a type-certified business band radio, hmm. which probably nobody's going to bother getting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, since they are business band and they're um, they're frequencies that are used across the United States, uh, there are other users of those same frequencies. So sometimes on a you know Yushpa channel, you'll still get other business users interfering. Hmm. Generally on the ham frequencies, as long as you're licensed and obeying the rules, uh, if you talk to ham radio operators that near on the same channel, they're usually very willing to move to a different channel when they, you tell them that you're flying paragliders and it's not convenient to change frequencies.
0: Sure, sure. So talk through some of the advantages of having it.
1: Okay, well the biggest one is, in my mind, is that the radios work really well. Uh, You can use something like FRS or GMRS, these little camping radios, but they just don't work very well. Uh, The ham radios transmit at five watts to a handheld and um, especially if you use a speaker mic um, or some kind of headset, uh, the quality of transmission and reception is good Mm -hmm. um, and the range is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's important for people to get licenses because the amateur radio part of the spectrum is one of the, the few that's available for public use. Uh, most of the, the radio spectrum is tied up for commercial interests. You know, TV, radio, uh, basically there's very little that's available to the public. Mm. And having the amateur radio community defending that part of the airwaves keeps them open. And the more amateur radio operators we have... Uh, the more likely that is to stay the case in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you want those frequencies available, I think it makes sense to get a hand license to prove to the government that we're out there and we're using them. And, sure, sure. Um, there's a, one more point, which mm-hmm. is, depending on your, your area, if you fly someplace where there's very bad cell phone coverage, like, you know, surprisingly, a lot of Northern California mountains, coverage is extremely spotty, there may be repeaters in, in the area that will allow you to communicate way better than the cell phones and that can be useful just for logistics and retrieve, but it could be especially useful in an emergency situation where you need to get a call out for help. Yeah. Great.
0: Back to what you're using in the air. So, you know, in the X-Alps, I think what a lot of people don't understand when you're watching live tracking is that kind of thing is they're just thinking, Oh my God, they're flying in the most heinous stuff. But, you know, like at least for myself, and I know a lot of the athletes uh, are in the race. You know, we're we're tied to our teams who are sending me real time information constantly. You know, wind data from peaks, wind data from valleys, from the airports, um, radar. That was a big one in this race because we had thunderstorms every day, and we had to fly between these storms, and so you know they could pick up exactly where these cells were and how they were moving and you know again this is a little bit of a game and you want to have some margin but are you looking at any of that type of stuff too are you looking at radar are you looking at other kind of resources i mean most of the places we fly we don't have cells so i imagine not but
1: yeah i have looked at radar on occasion and uh i've used some you know internet weather sites on my phone in flight. Technically, in the United States, uh, um, using a cell phone in, um, in an aircraft that's flying is illegal, so.
0: I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, just, just FYI, I can't, I can't recommend that you do this. I'm right, okay. I'm not, not a lawyer, but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but if you see development or are or concerned about embedded thunderstorms um, in sort of a stratus layer, I, I think it, it can certainly be helpful to, mm-hmm. to see some weather pictures. Um, or if you can get on the, on the radio with, you know, maybe a chase driver or other pilots that have landed and have them look up information for you, I, I get as much information as you can about what's going on with the air mm. on the surface and, uh, yeah, potential development, rain. Stick on this. We haven't covered it all, but I thought we might jump
0: to your flying Zeno. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about progression started 10 years ago but I know you've kept it pretty pretty safe, pretty, not slow, but conservative. And I and, uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Because I think one of the really common questions I get from the listeners is how do you know when to jump up and when should you, when should you not? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, so going back to what we mentioned earlier about having to kind of analytically understand things that fear would maybe tell other people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I got into the sport, I also looked around at, you know, who some of the good pilots were and saw a lot of people performing really well in their 40s and 50s and found out that a lot of people who, who got injured badly just left left and never came back. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, the trauma, the physical trauma could just completely – Take you out of the sport, even if you recovered fully. Mm-hmm. And so, in, in a similar way, I sort of told myself you have a lot of time, do it step by step, take it slow. I think that I didn't necessarily do that very well right at the start because I didn't know what I didn't know yet. Sure. And <laughs> ended, up, ended up flying kind of a, a higher end B after I got my P2 that was a, a second hand wing from a friend and i I survived on it. I got lucky a few times. I had a yeah, that incident where I ended up in a tree was on that glider. <laughs> um, but after that, I think that i I did a pretty good job of really building hours and f- flying the wings that I was on until I was totally comfortable on them and pretty much worn them out and uh let's see this. So there was uh, independence dragons that bee I mentioned. And then I flew a Sigma-6 for a little while. And then the uh, original Delta from Ozone. And then I've had two uh, Mantra-6s mm-hmm. for switching, moving to the Xeno.
0: Okay. And SIV, acro-training, other kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, I've done two SIV clinics. Probably due for another one. I, I'd really like to get back over the water. Uh, but I found SIV to be incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Went into it, raring to go, and learned a lot. and got myself in some dicey situations but nothing bad to the reserve <laughs> so, yeah. so that was good yeah and then uh, I was fortunate enough to have uh, have some friends who would get together and own you know one of whom owned a towboat and winch and would go out the lake and just just train without an instructor you know no, no coaching um, so I've done quite a bit of uh, spins and stalls and you know, just practicing collapses and so on over the, over the water mm. without instruction. And I, I found that to be incredibly valuable as well. One of the things that, uh, I think the, one of the big questions we
0: get all the time is, you know, how, how can you fly more? You know, how can you, and the answer to that over and over and over again is live in the right place and have the right job. And you've clearly nailed both of those by, you know, creating a work environment where you can be totally flexible and then you got the trailer so you can go wherever you want but if you could change anything about the last 10 years or maybe let's rewind the clock to you know your 50 hour self or your 100 hour self advice you wish you would have gotten or maybe advice you got but didn't heed
1: i mean i think that the the part that i feel like didn't go well was living in a spot that wasn't great for paragliding for a lot of those years we did have a local mountain that was really good, maybe six times a year, okay. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> and, and had it had a flyable window. You know, was generally flyable, maybe like March through beginning of June, mid June, um, but not great for most of that, that time of year. Really, only only a few good days a year, and then having to drive at minimum of two and a half hours, usually three, three and a half five plus hours to go somewhere to go flying Mm. really, really limited the number of hours I was able to fly. And so I think that, that limits your progression. If you want to develop your skills, I think getting out there and flying consistently and doing a lot of hours is a big part of that. Mm.
0: Uh, A tool we haven't discussed yet, that I know both you and I are pretty passionate about is X-Contest. Talk about X-Contest.
1: Yeah, um, so I've always been been uh, a big proponent of uploading your track logs and analyzing them post flight. I think that's a, another great way to, to learn and develop your skills. Uh, you can see where you made bad mis- bad choices. You can see where you fell out of a thermal where you needed to go to get back into it. Those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I was uh, only familiar with Leonardo, so I was uploading all my tracks to Leonardo, and it's a it's a great tool. But there's another one that's sort of more popular uh, in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I guess, you know, potentially more, uh, more well-respected or more watched. Uh, if you read cross-country magazine, they'll mention the top flights on next contest in mean, a given, uh, <laughs> given yeah. month or period, two month yeah. period. And I think I really started keying into it more last year when I was out here in Sun Valley for, uh, Nate Scales, uh, Intermountain Wide Open, where he was using that for the scoring. Personally, I like the way that it scores the flights a little better. I feel like Leonardo... Gives you a lot of points for flights that are scored through three-way points, and so the triangle and out and return bonuses, you know, FEI triangle, and flat triangle bonuses aren't really as relevant. Mm. Whereas in X contest, uh, you just get one point per kilometer for uh, for anything that's not a triangle, mm-hmm. uh, and bonuses matter a little bit more. Yeah. and I find that out and returns and triangles are a great challenge. And the- yeah, I think that's a lot. That's a lot
0: more in, in tune with what's happening out there. Your triangle's way harder than just winging it down the
1: Yeah, another another nice feature on uh, X-Contest is there's a search tool. So if you know you're going to be flying in a specific area and want to sort of see what other people have done and what lines tend to work, you can choose a point and a radius and either look at p- flights that started, you know, had, had a takeoff in, within that area or flights that intersected that area yeah so I Um, knew about
0: the takeoff I knew about the intersect that's really
1: useful Uh, so if you're if you're going to fly a new site I I highly recommend uh, scouting and seeing what other people have done um, just to get the lay of the land Mm. Mm.
0: yeah I think X-Contest is a really great tool you know we use it months in advance before the race, just to see how people get through certain terrain. You know, you can, you can learn a lot from X contest, not so much in places like this when there's not that many pilots, but <laughs> it definitely helps out more pilots. Yeah.
1: And you, do you
0: use the skyways feature as well in places that are busy? That that's pretty handy. I
1: do. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't recall offhand the URL for the site, but we'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. the, uh, the site that provides that data has some other features that people may or may not be aware of. One of which is you can download a waypoint file with thermal hotspots. Oh, wow. So if you have a device uh, on your flight deck that will show you waypoints in flight, that can be a very helpful, uh, helpful thing to have on there. That's really helpful. Um, These days I find most often, say I'm flying a new site that I'll, I'll pick a line and have a, you know, maybe a, a point on a ridge picked out where I think that there's going to be a thermal, and then I'll look down at the instrument and there'll be a hot spot there. And I, not so much looking at the instrument and trying to navigate to hot spots, um, but it's great having that confirmation that, okay, yes, I am going to the right place.
0: Right. That's excellent. Wow, that's a really okay. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. Yeah. That's fantastic. I Wish I would have had that for the race. <laughs> cool. Okay. So, Leonardo, you used for a while, now you're using X Contest. Uh, any other things we've missed with X Contest?
1: Um, well, for anybody who wants to sort of get out and uh, and be a little bit competitive, competitive with their XC flying in the United States, um, Yushpa has started a new competition format this year um, that's being squadron in X contest. So, uh, like a US league kind a, of thing? a US league, exactly. Cool. Uh, there are a lot of other countries that do this as well, and yeah. we're finally getting with the program. Excellent. Um, so, in addition to race to goal, we uh, we now have. Uh, an NXT ranking as well and that's helpful because we don't really have any contests anymore yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh lament
0: okay great
1: um, we'll put a link to the, the page for that in the show notes as well perfect
0: yeah that's one thing we haven't talked about competitions mm-hmm. I know you've uh, you've been doing some comps and uh, how do you view them in terms of progression
1: and value and well I first got into flying tasks with the Northern California Cross Country League mm-hmm. um, run by Deep Agarwal and uh, that was a fantastic way to progress. Just being around other better pilots and all trying to follow the same course will do a lot for your skills. Yeah. And then, i trying to remember, I think my first competition was the rat race, maybe in 2011. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've done quite a few comps since then. And I've generally approached competitions as a way to develop my skills and as a way to have kind of a convenient flying experience while traveling, you know, where retrieve and rides to the launcher are handled and mm. without doing guiding. Yeah. Cause generally competition's a little more bang for your buck in my opinion. Plus, you know, hopefully all your friends are there and you're having a great time racing around the sky. Sure. Yeah, sure.
0: You've had this 10 year career in paragliding. Now that you've got a lot more experience and a lot more hours, you're chasing it super hard. Uh, you hang out in a lot of places like here, where there's very, very few pilots. But you're also hanging out in places like Marshall, and you're heading out to the Wasatch. You've probably seen some bad stuff. Uh, are there are there things that you wish more people knew? Or are there are there are there things you're seeing that are common that are easily avoided? Like maybe at Marshall, I'm thinking you know, there's a lot of new pilots. It's a great place to learn. You know, are there ways to mitigate? Intermediate syndrome.
1: Well, let's see. I mean, there are a couple, couple big ones. Um, one thing that I, I, feel like isn't necessarily uh, drilled in enough in paraglider training is how important airspeed is to flying an aircraft. Mm. And I think that's because we don't have a whole lot of, you know, speed range. You've got your speed bar, but that only controls your pitch a very small amount. You're always swinging underneath mm. so that, since you're a pendulum. But coming from having flown sailplanes and and cessnas. Uh, it's really emphasized that airspeed is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. You know, your wing needs to be moving through the air in order to fly. As soon as it's not, you're yeah. in a stall. Mm-hmm. And I think people forget that. I think that flying at the coast can sometimes ingrain habits of uh, experiencing very low ground speed, even when, when your airspeed is in the, the normal range because of the wind exactly when you're, yeah. you're into the wind and so you get this perception that you're not moving very fast and that's fine
0: yeah
1: um and so for instance moving from the coast to the mountains maybe it's high altitude mountains on a light wind day all of a sudden your speed over the ground seems incredibly high but it needs to be yeah and so i've seen lots of people make approaches into thermic mountain lz's with a lot of brake applied and i think that's a, a Big problem, mm. um, and people really should focus on flying with minimum amount of brake necessary to feel the glider react to potential collapse. Because there may be a wind gradient, you know, the bottom may fall out. You may take a collapse, and if you have brake, you just you don't have the speed to keep your glider flying, and you're just going to cascade right into the ground. Excellent so, operation. so airspeed, yeah, airspeed's a great one. Um, another thing that maybe is a more minor point, but I constantly cringe when I see people do this. Is uh, feet leave the ground off takeoff, and either the brakes immediately go into one hand or just get yeah the pilot lets go to the brakes and starts using hands to push back in the harness and wiggling around, and yeah you know, there are these two phases of flight where you're going to be in a lot more danger potentially than the rest of the fight and there's nothing you can do about it launch and landing you're near the ground and the ground is what hurts you, so I would love to see more pilots fly away from the hill, hanging from their leg straps, flying the glider actively until they've climbed a little bit, maybe. You know, it's yeah. not easy to get in your harness. Thermals, thermal hanging from those leg straps until you're away from the ground, because mm. I've witnessed a couple very close calls because people weren't actively flying the glider off launch. Yeah, great.
0: Great. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. Any others?
1: I don't know that I have the authority to say this, because I've never thrown my reserve, but... If you don't know what's going on with the glider, it's out of control, throw the reserve. I've seen quite a few reserve tosses. I don't think any of them resulted in any kind of serious injury. Maybe minor injuries, but it's not bad at all.
0: And we've both seen a lot where they haven't thrown. True. And it's, and it's terrible. Yeah, I their, Jockey told me something when I was, I was doing some acro training with him out in Turkey uh, in 2012. And we were talking it was the reserve day he yeah, was talking reserves. We didn't want to throw in reserves. And, uh, and I said, how low is too low? And he said, there's no such thing. You throw it at 10 feet because that thing might snag something. You know, yeah. I hear people say all the time, I was too th- too low to throw my reserve. That's There's no such thing. You know, if, yeah, I think if you have, I was really impressed. We had Tom Payne on the show and he was talking about doing helis and drifted out. Threw his first reserve right into his wing, threw his second reserve right into his wing, got incredibly lucky. Um, But then he was talking about another experience flying comp glider in a comp in San Andre and just had a massive blowout and just threw instantly. And I thought that was really incredibly mature because he was pretty low. Probably had enough time to deal a little bit, but I think he was like 200 feet. That's not a lot of time and uh, why not? You know, when in doubt, there's no doubt.
1: Yeah. And I I personally try and, you know, anytime flying near terrain, try and gauge what is the height below which my first reaction should be go for the handle. Yeah. um, And sort of have that in my head. Yeah. Anytime I feel like I'm scratching, anytime I'm within, you know, 500 to 1,000 feet of terrain and it's thermic and turbulent, I try and... Get myself ready so that if it, if the wind goes away, I don't try and fight it to the ground because that's clearly a way to get hurt and the reserve saves your ass a lot of times, I
0: think. (laughs) Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. One, we hear a lot and I think we we just need to keep hearing it. That's great. Anything else? I feel like we, we covered a lot there. I think we did too. Travis, man, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Uh, always, always, always educational. Hanging out with you, I dig it. And I think the listeners will as well. And uh, man, I hope you have a good time just chasing it and sending it.
1: Thanks for having me, Gavin. It was uh, it was a pleasure. It's always fun uh, hanging out with you. And you're an inspiration. And you're flying and uh, and hiking <laughs>
0: <laughs> and hiking and <laughs> a lot of hiking. Cool, man. Well, thanks. Well, let's uh, let's go fly. Cheers. Hope you enjoyed that a little bit different show uh, that was a lot of fun for me to do i learned a lot i hope you did as well as always all we ask for is buck a show uh thank you so much for contributing uh, this listener supported podcast and if you can't support us financially there are many other ways you can do so you can share it on the social medias you can give us a rating uh tell your friends the whole purpose of this is just to make us as a community safer fly farther fly better and uh, have more fun so hope you enjoyed it uh, reach out to me if you've got any questions or ideas for future guests. We've got some great shows coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking sailplanes. We're going to be talking wave. Uh, some really exciting things. So great to be back on the air. Great to be back from the race. Uh, thank you all for your support during the race. That was that was pretty epic. And uh, hope you're having a good summer flying if you're in the northern hemisphere. And hope you're getting stoked to fly if you're in the southern. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Cheers.